Hello folks, welcome back and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, as always, Simon Ward. Firstly, thank you so much to Kathy Robertson who made a generous donation which has covered the cost of this week's podcast. So Kathy, this episode is dedicated to you. Now in the six years since we launched this podcast, I've managed to do so without taking on any adverts to cover the costs. And I'd like to continue in this manner, but those costs of producing the podcast are growing annually. So if you're interested in making a one-off or a regular donation to help us cover those costs, then in return, I'll dedicate the episode or episodes to you, and we can avoid that thorny issue of adverts, which nobody really likes. And if you want to get involved with that, you can find a link in the show notes, or you can email Beth at thetriathloncoach.com for further details. Okay, now for today's show. Have you ever thought about attempting a multi-day bike tour? Maybe the Raid Pyrenees, which will take you four or five days, or something a bit longer. Lands into John O'Groats is always a good one, and that'll take you about eight to ten days. Now, these are both big challenges, and I've done both of them, but how far would you push it? What about the full Tour de France route, including the rest days? Well, if you're interested in that, there's actually an event called Le Loop, which does exactly that, including a finish in the centre of Paris, although you don't get to ride the full eight laps around the Arc de Triomphe. So my guest today is James Risley. He's been on the show before talking about his high-performance human lifestyle. In November 2022, James decided to enter the full loop event and take on what would without doubt be the biggest challenge of his life. And in what is a two-part episode or podcast, as you'll realise once you get into it, we'll chat about everything from his training and his equipment choices to logistical challenges and finally the day-to-day of the event and what happened after it finished. In this week's episode we're going to talk about how to prepare for an event like this whilst also managing a new job role and the inevitable impacts that it had on his sleep, his stress levels and relationships. So let's crack on and hear from James. Welcome back to the show James Risley. Hi Simon thanks for having us back. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. Um, the last podcast you did, I can't remember when it was, maybe a couple of years ago, we, we were talking about your life as a high-performance human. And uh, I suppose we're going to give another confirmation of that now when we talk about this next adventure that you've completed this year. Yeah, it, it's funny, that kind of high-performance human tag, isn't it? Because you, fundamentally, it's just about how, how you live your life and try to muddle through and do the best you can, right? And um, I think we touched last time on... Some of the challenges um, had through COVID um, as an A&E doctor. Um, and yeah, this is slightly different now. So yeah, this is about um, cycling. Well, I uh, funnily enough, I came across some research the other day by um, some chaps called Jones, Gittins and Hardy. And they talked about the high performance environment and they define the concept of high performance as described as a measurable state where an entity i.e. a human, consistently performs at a higher level of operational success compared with most of its peers. So, you know, my definition of a high-performance human is somebody who consistently performs at a higher level of success compared to their peer group. And I, you know, which is why I would dispute when people say, oh, I'm not a high-performance human, because actually you're – what are you? You're, you're one of the youngest deputy medical officers in the country. You're qualified as a lawyer – and as a as a consultant doctor 
and you're doing all these high-level athletic things, and you're only in your what early forties? Forty-one. Yeah. Yeah. So that that would that that would fit nicely into my definition of a high-performance human. It probably might not fit into yours. I'll take that. (laughs) Um. So let's tell folks what this huge outlandish challenge was because that's what it seemed like when you said to me say si, i'm going to do this next year back in 2022 yeah so so it's called le loop and it's riding the tour de france but you set off one week before the professionals so you um you ride stage by stage day by day exactly the same itinerary exactly the same rest days as as the tour it's um put on by, by charity um and they've been going for about 15 or 20 years now. And yeah, it's it's been it started off as just a group of the family trying to, you know, trying to see whether they, they could do it, whether it could be done. And then it was just such a success that they uh, they carried it on year by year. And there's, you know, there's 100 over 100 people doing it each year at the moment. Mm. Now, if correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you do get options, don't you? You can choose which of the weeks because it's a th- the tour's three weeks. So you can choose which of the weeks you want to do. Or you can plump to do the whole thing, which is what you did. Yeah, right. And it's you know, it'd be remiss of me if I didn't mention the 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 trust. It's the William Waits Memorial Trust, um, and it's a it's a fantastic um, enterprise that really helps kind of support and encourage young people that have had real severe disadvantages in their life. Um, really stay away from antisocial behaviour, criminal activity, and really push to enable them to fulfil their potential. It's a it's a really really worthwhile charity. Um, you there's a number of options you can either do the grand loop as they call it which is the whole lot you can do half the loop so you either choose to do the first or second half and then you can go and do little chunks so if there's a particular bit you want to do one year so i think you know if, if the alps has a section one year and it's three or four days you can go out and do specific sections so throughout the the three weeks we were out there you had a really great mix of people because you had the core group of about 30 or 40 of us that um had committed to trying to 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 do the whole thing and then you'd have people who come and go throughout it which which was great but also presented some challenges as well that you wouldn't ordinarily twig which i think we'll probably get into later yeah i was going to come back to those actually um unforeseen challenges that perhaps yeah. even even in our extensive discussions about how to prepare and do this thing we we probably never even thought of um what's the, what's the cost then because it sounds like three weeks um i guess you once you're in France, um, everything's covered. So uh, that's we we've done sort of seven and ten day tours in Europe, and it costs us a fair bit of money to put it together. So I guess it was um, at a reasonable price tag. It was four thousand pounds for the whole thing, and that included um, all the accommodation. It included transfers throughout the tour. Um, it included breakfast, dinner. Um, and included all of the the kind of feed stations and feed stops we would have throughout. Um, you had to guarantee to raise three thousand pounds on top of that, um, which you would kind of have to cover you, yourself if you weren't able to, to hit that target. Um, so yeah, so four thousand, which to be fair for three weeks um, for what it was, is not actually that bad. I think you know. Um, there were a lot of unforeseen costs though that come with it. I mean, when we might talk through the prep in a bit, but things like making sure you get your bike fit, upgrading your, your bike kit, um, all the clothing, um, mm. yeah, before you know it, 
physio bills because <laughs> you do get tweaks doing the training um and they're the getting there and back it, it it all subtly adds up but but yeah about about four thousand all right so for people who haven't listened to the um previous podcast and i will put a link to that in the show notes um let's just give folks an indication of your athletic history um how long we've been working together and then how that athletic history ties into your working life and and everything else because that's an important part of preparing for an event like this okay so i i think i'm a again depends how you want to frame it but in my mind i'm i'm a joe blog average try hard ironman triathlete basically you know i'm someone that turn up won't set the world alight but we'll plug along and i enjoy the process so you know, we started working together about 10 years ago. I'd I'd played football to a reasonably high level at school, did a bit of rowing at uni, but nothing, you know, nothing um, like significant. Um, and then got into triathlon accidentally through a sprint triathlon in um, when I was in New Zealand in 2010, um, mainly because everybody out there does stuff all the time. You just get sucked into it and it becomes part of the lifestyle. And I did a sprint out there, really enjoyed it. And then, but I thought, oh, I'm done with that. And then that was the time when Chrissy Wellington was starting to to come mm. to the fore. Mm. And you start going, oh, what is, what's that? What's that crazy thing? And, and I'm a little bit um, kind of, yeah, I, I, big, big things inspire me. And before I knew it, I'd signed up for, for Bolton. So I did Bolton in 2012. And then that was it really. I've done five, five Ironmans since, um, I'm like a 12, 12 and a half hour-ish person on a on a good day. Um, I've done a couple of ultras. So I've kind of run around Jersey, around the rock, which was about 80K. Um, done some long-distance swims. Um, but but generally speaking, just I enjoy the process of training. I find it very cathartic and good for my mental health. And I prefer the long stuff because that's more a test of me rather than my physiology and genetics you know, which is, which is going to limit you, you know, by, by my age, when I'd started, I think I had, um, especially things like the swim, I'd already kind of set my levels. Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah. So that's your athletic history. Yeah. Um, you don't have a normal straightforward nine to five, low responsibility, easy to do job though. Um, no. So, um, background, certainly is not like... by, certainly not by my standards. Anyway. <laughs> so, well, so yeah, doctor, um, qualified in 2006, um, had a bit of a meandering career, started off doing surgery a bit, um, didn't realise it wasn't really the right thing for me, um, went off to do law um, and then was going to go down that route. Life got in the way it tends to, and I ended up as an emergency medicine consultant, um, more through, to be fair, accident of life rather than plan. Um, and then through COVID, ended up in some um, clinical leadership positions, as I think a lot of us kind of had to by default, stepping up to to start owning things and trying to uh, figure out what on earth we were all going to do. And I wasn't completely awful at it. So I ended up kind of going up through the senior uh, kind of rungs of, of management in the hospital I was working at the time. And it got to about May last year where I was doing a, an MBA and that finished in May last year. And I just realized I was exhausted. I'd kind of fallen out of love with what I was doing and, and took a bit of a break. And during that career break, a job came up in Wales. Um, which the I mean the long titled deputy executive medical director um for Betsy Cadwallader University Health Board. So it's the whole of North Wales. Um it's oh god, we've got about 21,000 employees. 
and um, about £2.2 billion pound in, in budget each year. Um, and we cover everything from Wrexham to, to Hollyhead, basically. Um, and so I, I took that on as an interim in January of this year. Um, and then, again, wasn't awful at it. So I was invited to apply for the substantive job and got it got, got that substantively. Um, but then again, life got in the way, and um, which we'll probably go into in a bit, which kind of changed how we were going to have to prep for the loop um, because that job in itself and some of the personal stuff um, did dramatically reframe how on earth we were going to try and, and get me to the start line. Okay, so when you, when you started the job in January, um, you live in Worcester? Yep. So that's a, a reasonable distance from um, North Wales, from Wrexham? Yeah, so it's um, 168 miles. And uh, what I was what I was doing and, and continue to do is I stay in the travel lodge um, up there in the week. So for the first month or two, um, I was up there Monday to Friday, um, excuse me, uh, yeah, staying, staying in a travel lodge somewhere along the A55, be it in, you know, near Real or, or Chester, um, and really kind of getting that boots on the ground, meeting people, building your relationships, things like that. And then as that kind of two months period settled, um, I now go down to three days. So I'm up there every Monday and Tuesday night, and then I drive back late on a Wednesday and have two days working from home. Right. So that brings challenges in itself in terms of training you're not at home you've obviously there's a limited amount of stuff that you can have um with you in the hotel um no bike no turbo trainer haven't used a gym that sort of stuff so that restricts the um the opportunities for training somewhat doesn't it because then you know on the monday you're going to be doing a lot of traveling early start sleep in the hotel and then on wednesday you're going to finish and you have a and you're going to have a late finish driving home as well so uh, that's that's challenging also Yes. And what I hadn't quite anticipated was the maelstrom I was going to walk into at work. So it was it was a step up in the first instance. So it was quite, quite a big step up, to be fair, for me. So I knew it was going to be accompanied with some significant stress with that. Um, but what then essentially happened in the next, well, I think I'd been there four weeks and then the chief executive went on gardening leave. We had no chief financial officer because Audit Wales had found that about 150 million had gone missing from the accounts and been unaccounted for in various years or whatever. We had no coup. We had no director of workforce. Um, and then, so my my boss stepped up into the CEO role, uh, which then meant me and the other deputy Jim were stepping up into his role within about four or six weeks. And um the health minister and this is all in kind of in, on bbc news the health minister then decided to fire the chair and all of the non-execs um and then about four weeks later went into special measures so it's um it it was a very yeah that that was a hell of a lot i think to um to all all kind of come within a few months really mm. and then as you say trying to fit in a new way of trying to stay healthy mentally and physically and keep training rather than just staying active was really challenging. Mm. Okay. So um, can you just remind me at what point you entered this race then? Yeah. So it it opens up um, the day after the the official tour route is announced, which I think is it usually around August, September time. 
No, I think it's a bit late than that, actually. I think, I think yeah. it might be more like November because uh, August, September, you've still got Vuelta uh, going on, haven't you? It's, I think it's probably after the road racing season has finished. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing the, um, an interview with Mark Cavendish about 2024 tour and him saying how hard it was. And that I think that was just a few weeks ago. So let, let's say it's October, November time. Yeah, so so that, that's when they open up um, the applications for it. I, I remember you you and I having our regular Friday morning call and you said, Sai, Sai, I need to tell you something. I've entered this race uh, event next year. Oh, okay. What is it then? It's called The Loop. <laughs> oh, okay, is that a lot like a one-day sportive then? Mm, not exactly. <laughs> so then I go and Google it like you do. Yeah. We're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. That's a big, that's like three weeks of sportives. <laughs> um. Yes, so a bit of a challenge. So um, we, we've got the background to it. We've got your sporting background. We've ascertained that you consider yourself not to be, um, you know, you're reasonable at all three sports. Um, you're not an Uber cyclist. That was one of the things you put in the notes. I'm not. I'm not an Uber biker. I'm just just an average guy. Um, so for any of those folks who are listening who are, might be starting to get in curious about this, um, don't worry if you don't have an FTP of 400 because James doesn't either. <laughs> no so and again if people are interested in, in numbers you know i a lot of i was kind of aiming for 160 to 180 watts kind of normalized power per day and i when i went out there i was about 70 kilos and i probably just dipped i got really quite lean for it so i was probably about eight or nine percent body fat um with a view to just trying to get as as lean as i could so i wasn't carrying extra weight um because i was that worried about even being able to get around each day um so yeah and you know ftps bits and bobs i think my best ever has been like 270 you know it, I, it's never been anything anything outstanding at all um but it but it's the ability to keep going day after day after day efficiently at an intensity that isn't going to ruin your body is mm. the key to this kind of thing which is what yeah. we train yeah and I, and I mean i've done long distance events and i've worked with folks who've done long multi-day events you know i worked with a group of chaps who weren't weren't from a rowing background would probably have considered their ability at rowing similar to you describe your um endurance ability you know just average they were doing one of these um four-man rowing teams that that goes from tenerife to bar um, to barbados it took them 50 days they actually won the age group but they were saying it, it was horrendous and when I asked them about how, how the fitness training helped, they said, yeah, it was good for the first few hours. But then after that, when we were seasick, um, yeah. it, you know, uh, sunburnt, uh, blistered and, you know, just miserable, then it becomes uh, a matter of grit and determination and not fitness because there was Olympic there, there was Olympic rows in there who were giving up after 48 hours. So I, I would imagine that it's very similar for this event, that, that mindset and stubbornness uh, are probably the key elements that you need. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think I probably reflected on afterwards or even during was that whether or not I was fit enough to do it was already determined at the time I applied. And actually, in, in hindsight, our job was to get me to the start line uninjured and not detrained um, and healthy. And I think that that's the thing because you, everybody that was on that, that was on it, huge variety of backgrounds but everybody pretty much had five or ten years of doing stuff you know in that long-term adaptation that comes through five or ten years of just being consistently active 
I think is is the key to a lot of this. And then how you actually just prep yourself to to get to give yourself a chance at the start line to finish. Yeah, I think uh, that that most people underestimate the fitness levels and um, overestimate actually what what are the important things for events like this. Because I've seen it the same in Marathon de Sable, where folks are out trying to run a hundred miles a week and probably not understanding that unless you're in the top five percent, it's not. It's just a long hard hike for most people with a bit of jogging yeah. and the important things are cleanliness hygiene um being able to sleep in a you know a tent in the middle of a sandstorm at night yeah um and coping with the heat um and it's not about the fitness so um we, we had an extensive or extensive conversations didn't we talking about all of the things and we we went right down into the minutiae at least i thought we did but as as we'll talk about later we still miss some stuff um so what is it three thousand kilometers three and a half thousand kilometers and it was fifty five thousand meters of climbing okay um, over the three weeks So there's no way you're going to get a couple of good weekends in and, and think you're fit enough to do that, is there really? <laughs> no, no, there's there's not. And, you know, part of the way we approached this was trying to pick out some really hard sportives, you know, like the hardest hundred or tour the peak to to just get in the leg so you know what it feels like, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, as, as we talked about before, unless you actually go and do some of these climbs, it's really hard to train for them. You know, when you're going up Grand Columbia and you're doing like a two hour climb or whatever, you know, when yeah. you're, you're doing 7% after 7% after 7% and then it ramps up to 12% and all this kind of stuff, you, you won't get that in the UK to go on for hours. You no. get short, sharp stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's very difficult, even in training over here, if you get the same, th- same th- amount of climbing meters in a day it's going to be shorter, sharper climbs, mostly, you know, a lot of the British climbs, certainly in the places you were just talking about riding there, you know, for those two sportives, or if you come to Yorkshire or North Wales, you could be riding 15 or 20%. That's that's quite rare. You do get examples of that in France and, and in all of the major tours, but they're rare and they're almost manufactured. You know, they'll they'll extend the road to, to get in a bit of an, a gnarly finish, um, but, but they're just they grind you down, don't they? Those long climbs, you know, hour after hour, or you, you climbing for two hours, then you're descending for two hours and then back up the climbing. And you no, know, it's just relentless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the other, you have far fewer cows and wandering around the roads as well. <laughs> that was the oh, other thing. In England. Know. Yeah. Yeah. In England. Yeah. Well, yeah. In England. But yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, 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 I've been there when you, when you're riding along and you come around the corner and there's just, just a, uh, a herd of cows across the road, not yeah. just one of them, but like a wall and you don't want to run into them really, do you? They're quite solid things. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we've ascertained that you've got a busy job. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of days a week when it's going to be really difficult for you not to get any training in. You're not a full-time cyclist who's going to be able to ride five or six hours a day. So th- there's a limit to the amount of training that you can cope with. And then we have to match that up with the demands of this event. Um, and I think that's a mindset thing, isn't it? Accepting that I'm probably never going to achieve the, the sort of volume and mileage that I think I need in order to be able to get through that. And I know that would that would freak a lot of people out. Yeah. And I think when when I thought about this, because it came across my radar a few years ago, and when I thought about, actually, I'm going to take a bit of time out from work. I'm going to do a bit of locoming, work a few days a week. I thought, well, actually, if I could have four days a week where I can get some good long rides in for 
10 months that's probably going to give give me a good you know put me in good stead and then when the job came up in north wales it was i knew there'd be a compromise to that and we had talked about how, whether or not there would be a way to make it work with getting the training if we thought there would be um but it was it became a lot harder because of some of the work stresses and pressures that i've mentioned but also i had a i mean i had a significant breakdown of a relationship and engagement that ended unexpectedly in the basically after about two months mm-hmm. uh, of, of the year so kind of near the end of february early march um which obviously wasn't expecting and then had the engine on my car failed <laughs> which i wasn't expecting either so you know when we talked about the prep going into this you know we've talked in the past about stress management and you know you're everyone's got a cup that you can fill with only a certain amount of stress and I think I had made decisions based on the known facts at the time as to with all the stuff that I thought I was going into would I be able to juggle all the balls and then as each month went by I got more crap thrown at me and I thought oh crikey right I'm juggling far too much now and we did have to have that conversation of do I just bin it for this year and defer it? Because I was pretty broken, to be fair. Because I mean, the the way we had set it up was I was um, I'm a member of David Lloyd, so there was a David Lloyd in Cheshire Oaks, which just north of Chester, and there was a travel lodge that was next to it. So the way we'd kind of got those three those three first days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, working was I would drive up on the Monday, I would do a um, a what bike session in the gym on the monday evening um tuesday morning i would get in the gym at six because my working day started about half seven so i would be in the gym pretty much at six then i would do an hour's training and i would then get showered and ready to get in the car to start my court half seven and then i would take that first half of that call in the car on the way to the office pick up the second half of that call when i was in the office so and then you'd have your normal day's work and then again at the end it was i would drive back so even though um kind of uh i was based near real that's where our corporate office is so it was about a 40 minute drive um but it was the only way really that we were logistically going to be able to get me near gym facilities that and, and also the other thing that comes into it is is what do you eat i'd never lived in a hotel before you know like what what do you do for like dinner i mean there might be people listening that are used to working away with but I, i've never done it before and you end up you know, in ZZs or, you know, Nando's or what, whatever's around every night. And actually, before you know it, it's really easy, A, to spend a fortune, but B, to eat a lot of crap as well. Um, and actually stuff that isn't nutritious and isn't actually doing you any good and it becomes more comfort food. Um, so we was trying to get a, trying to figure out a plan around that as well. Because obviously the thing was, same with breakfast and, and lunches. I wasn't, I didn't have my own, you know, my kitchen. So I couldn't like, make myself pack lunches and things like that so you it was trying to adapt all those things that although they sound little when you start throwing them all in with all the other bits you're trying to challenge you're trying to sort out um proportionally it becomes a bit more tricky mm. well if you're not eating the right foods and you're eating calorie dense foods or other nutrient dense foods on those first two or three days that sort of puts you a bit behind the curve for when you get home and you start wanting to um ramp up the volume when you're on home turf so even if you're eating well on those four days you, you've got to play catch up on the first three days or get and or get ahead for the next three days at the, at the start of the following week um so it's it's a constant challenge and i think that though when you, when you sort of add those things in that you know the enormity of what you did 
uh, as we'll get onto in a bit, becomes more more and more significant. Um, but it also, but what it also shows is that even if things aren't perfect, it doesn't mean that it's going to derail you from your challenge. You know, the human bodies and, and the human mind are amazing things, and um, we can achieve some amazing things without everything being perfect in the run up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think for, I think the kind of pragmatic decision we took was that if I decided to knock it on the head for this year, the resentment of having to do so would probably eat away at me over time. And and, and that would probably, I'd much rather have just get to the start line and see how I get on. And at least I've tried and I've not let the life events that were outside of my control take away the, the potential of an opportunity of something I've been looking to do for a long time. Um. You've had a few injuries, mostly concerning running. And as a triathlete, that's not unusual. You know, that's where most of the injuries occur. But you have had some injuries in the past. And going back to that goal for getting to the start line, healthy, uninjured, having been as consistent as possible. Um, besides getting on your bike, what other actions were you taking that were going to sort of play into that being as healthy as I can be? So I think since I think kind of midway through 2021 I've been doing morning mobility so 10 to 15 minutes and it's evolved and changed over time but it has very much been right every morning starts with mobility you know starting with some hip flexor work glute activation you know um a bit a bit of kind of um well everything really just whatever as as my training changes and as I start to get or feel I'm getting niggles, you just amend it a little bit. But that was also feeding into a routine that we knew that during those three weeks, I was going to have to do some form of self-physio and mobility every single day before and after the bike. Otherwise, I was just going to seize up, you know, if you're sitting down for that long and, and I would then get injured on the bike if I wasn't careful. Um, the other thing that we prioritise a bit more was was strength and conditioning. And rather than do an extra hour on a watt bike if that's what i had access to in the gym actually getting in the gym and doing strength work and core work and making sure that my frame was going to be strong enough and resilient enough and that my the muscles i do have were firing the right order and that they were you know equally strong um and i wasn't getting any kind of inequity and yeah the uh, inequity between each side um was going to be important so that's kind of the the other thing we focused on as well we started started doing a little bit of running and swimming just to keep me a bit sane because i think especially through the winter i mean most of my training to be fair was done on a turbo trainer and you know i've got a an old school compu trainer you know it's i don't know if anyone listening remembers them but you know it's about 20 years old and it's about it's like yeah it's like using an atari computer game right but it it works and that's the other thing with this you don't need to spend thousands and thousands of fancy kit just to get the training done you know i just sat in my garage on this 20 year old compu trainer um plowing away for hours at a time but just to you know give me that little bit of variety we did do a little bit of swimming just you know 45 minutes or the odd run you know again 45 minute run every now and again but i think as time went on and the complexity of life um increased we realized i didn't have that slack actually and if i was gonna maximize every single minute i had we had to drop those and i just had to gut it up and do more more turbo or get out more i hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot 
If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. I'll just come back to that whole strategy of keeping you healthy. We, One of the things we talked about, I, th- I think, was that it wasn't going to be your aerobic fitness that was going to be letting you down. Um, it was going to be things like waking up in the morning with, um, uh, with a bad back, a tight back, waking up in the morning with a tight neck because of, you know, you've been in that dropped, you know, on the bottom of your drops, descending down a mountainside, but constantly looking up and the strain that that takes when you're gripping the brakes yeah. and just on and off. And, you know, you're tense because, th- th- you know, th- it's dangerous to descending mountains at, at fast speed, as, as we know. Um sore feet, uh, sore butt from just spending hours on the saddle. Those were the things that could easily be overlooked that were going to derail you. And, and we wanted to just um, make sure that your body was able to cope with the rigors of being in, in that sort of hunched up position for hours on end. So I did suggest that you went to see uh, Phil Burt, didn't I? The the bike fitter over yep. in Manchester who we've had on as a guest a, a few times. Um, so how do, how do you feel like that worked out for you in terms of what you learnt about setting your bike up to give you the best chance? So interesting in that we didn't change a huge amount having seen Phil because I'd had bike fits in the past and because my mobility is all right, um, and I'd had the same bike position for a long time with no real cycling injuries. Um, didn't really have to change much, but what it was great in doing was it, it gives you that confidence that actually I'm minimising the likelihood of me getting injured. So he feel, feels great. I mean, he, he he knows an incredible amount about this stuff, but it wasn't just your typical kind of retal 3D bike fit. It, it goes in a bit more than that. And there was a lot of stuff to do with saddle because you know, my key contact points were going to be hands, butt and feet, right? So getting that added sense check of actually, right, my cleats are in the right position, right? Great. Okay. Now the saddle, you know, doing the pressure, the kind of pressure assessment and seeing, right, well, how am I sitting when I'm cycling? How's it shifting? Do I need to change my saddle? Um, and then I I was getting, well, I do have a bit of early arthritis in my left wrist. So we're then talking about, right, well, if after two weeks I can't actually, because I, I struggled to, to get in a press-up position because of pain in my left wrist. And it's like, well, if I'm going to be holding the handlebars for three weeks, um, how can I go about setting up um, mini extension bars if I need to? And how would I have to change the rest of the setup if I was having to, for a couple of days, rest on those? So it's trying to think about, you know, what could go wrong and how can I mitigate for that? But coming away from that, knowing actually the vast majority of it is okay, again, gives you that faith that, right, the likelihood is I'm setting myself up to succeed. You did you did change your handlebar width, didn't you, I think? I did. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Forgotten about that, actually. Yeah, so went for a narrower, um, narrower handlebars. And that actually did, did help because it's, it's odd. I'm relatively broad-shouldered, but... Um, I'm my hanging angle of my arms when they come together is quite narrow. So actually bringing that in 
made it far more comfortable. Um, mm. And he mentioned at the time about aerodynamics. I, I, I don't think nicking an inch off the front, the frontal profile made a significant difference, but psychologically, I thought it probably helped me a little bit. Well, <laughs> I've had a similar conversation with Phil because I, I also went to see him for a bike fit and, uh, when I'm when I mentioned this conversation to one of my friends, he said, "Well, do you not remember when we used to get bikes twenty years ago? The guys in the shop would say, oh, you want these wider handlebars? You know, gives you more stability.'" When I spoke to Phil, he said, "Right, look look at this here. I'm going to put you in front of the camera, and then I'm going to put a broom handle in line with where your shoulders are. All right, now look at where your hands are. They're outside of the line of the broom handle, so the broom handle's resting on the floor, standing vertically in front of me." And he said, you've got 44 um, centimetre bars on there. I think you could go down to 42 or 40. And I thought, mm, these feel really good descending. Those, you know, mountain um, passes at high speed, a bit more stability. And then he said, yes, but if you're in that position for all day, your arms are splayed out slightly. That puts a, just a slightly different stress on your shoulder joints, on your elbow joints, on your wrists. If you're doing that day after day, then that stress will build up until such point as you you get like um, a repetitive strain injury that then becomes uncomfortable. And so you're thinking about, oh, my wrist hurts when you're riding instead of I need to keep riding smoothly. Um, so, so there's there's that thing about just the tiny change in, um, in handlebar width and how it takes the pressure off your shoulders. He also mentioned the aerodynamic thing, and it's about when your arms are a bit wider, it opens up the chest a bit more. When your hands are narrow, it just closes it down slightly. It, it might make um, it might make a small amount of difference, but as we talked about, you know, five watts is five watts, and you probably wouldn't have wanted to ride around that route knowing that your jockey wheels were crudded up with oil and gunge and that your chain was all manky and so that was sucking the life out of all the effort in your legs so you, you want to make life as easy as possible and if you can gain a few if you can gain a little bit of um or put in a little bit of less effort but over several hours every day that's that's got to be a help hasn't it yeah and it, it is it's an interesting isn't it because rather than you know chasing weight and being a weight we is it weight weenies is a website isn't it yeah 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 you yeah. go through everything you know so it, it wasn't that i was going right i'm going to get ceramic this and carbon fiber seat posts and it wasn't doing all that stuff but it was more of a right well what what is what's the the easy quick reasonably cheap wins here that because the the whole point of this to be fair was self-regulation and self-management so that you mm. don't overexert yourself each day and that you don't necessarily you don't unnecessarily exert any energy you don't need to because it, it adds up um and you know I, I think i remember making a comment it was probably getting to in a bit about if i probably had another 15 or 20 watts the experience would have been completely different because you'd be finishing earlier and the consequences of that but but actually all the little bits that i managed to put together meant that i was able to get able to finish basically so it was all worth it in the end Let's talk about the changes you did make to your bike then. I mean, you, you know, people are probably thinking that you've got a nice 10 grand bike here and it's because that's the sort of bike that we'd expect a guy like you to ride. But the, the truth is a little bit different to that. Uh, yeah. So well, I've got a, a Boardman. I mean, it was, they've stopped making them now. It was a, an, an SLR Endurance 9.8, I think is what it's called. It was about, I think the frame was 800 quid. Um and I've got Zip 404 clinchers, which I've had for about four or five years. 
uh, and the bike frame was about four years as well so i think the total bike probably cost me about three and a half four i've got um Altegra di2 on it and i have favero power pedals um and i took a karoo hammerhead um which as my bike computer which actually was a savior because when that the reason I got that and not a Garmin was originally Garmin didn't do their Climb Pro feature, whereas Karoo did. And that was psychologically, without that, I would have really struggled day by day, you know, not not knowing how far you've got to go on each climb. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been torture. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it wasn't like, I mean, there were some people on, on that, that were there that had your Fescas. They had the the 15 20 000 pound bikes you know with the the custom frame with the with the saddle posts that are integrated you know that so that you can never sell them on you know and and that was that was great and but it wouldn't have made any material difference to me mm. um but yeah and actually interestingly the some of the people with the higher end stuff actually ended up getting in a bit of trouble because you know some of the campag stuff when it goes wrong when you're in the middle of france you can't get replacements right so you know what happens when you break your derailleur or your front crank goes or whatever and you can't just plug and play because it's not just about box standard shimano mm. yeah and i guess for, for most listeners they they might experience kit breaking down but your your average rider will probably do a long ride on a weekend maybe two if they're training for a big event maybe a couple of rides during the week during the winter it'd probably be on an indoor trainer so you 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 know obviously in your garage or in your house so no no problem if it if it stops working it's just frustration that you don't get your session finished um and if you're out on the road with your club mates um you're familiar with the area and the surroundings you probably know where the bike shop or how to get home um when you're riding you know 150 miles a day um in tough conditions putting a lot of strain on the bike and you're in the middle of France. And oh, yes, you've got support, but still, uh, if the bike shop's closed, the bike shop's closed. If you need a new derailleur, they don't have, yeah. it's not like having Ineos team support where they've got a spares of everything. You don't have that luxury. Yeah. So having equipment that is durable and reliable is probably more of a, a choice than um, lightweight and, uh, you know, fancy. And it was interesting because, it, it, you know, it's one thing having the kits, the other thing, maintaining it isn't it and um there were i mean everybody had bike services before they went out but despite that stuff was breaking that shouldn't have you know people's cranks were were snapping you know the shimano thing we had i think two or three went like that you know how they've got the recalls and mm. um, but there were a number of those when derailleurs were going you, you name it you know frames were cracking and it's i think it's mainly because if a some of that is due to just misfortune but it's not very often that I think you'll put that kind of kit under that prolonged period of stress where if you're not keeping on top of all the little bits, um, the likelihood of finding a failure point, if it exists, you're going to find it. Mm. So were you, were you, did you take any spares with you? Um, yeah. And yeah, what, so- what, would you, what would you say was actually useful and what was probably um, a waste of time taking? So they suggested taking um, spare bottom bracket. Uh, no, sorry, spare derailleur. Um, what else? Um, spare rear mech. Yeah, spare spokes. Um, what else did I take? I took clip-on handlebars. Um, what about and- what about derailleur hanger? 
Yeah, because they they get bent on the frame, don't they? Sometimes. Yeah, yep. took took one to spare one of them. Um, I think I took a separate um, cassette as well. Can't remember exactly why, um, but I did. Um, basic toolkit, um, and that was about it. I think you know spare chain. Did I take a spare? I didn't take a spare chain or a, or uh, a, one of those little hyperlink things. No, I didn't. No, no. I I think I had a couple of spare chain links. One thing to mention is that they do have um, bike mechanics that are with you um, throughout the trip. So they have a limited amount of stuff with them that they can do at the end of the day. So if you rock up at the end of the day and you're like, my bike is making a really funny noise. They had a, a happy bike and a sad bike pile. And you just drop it over and say, it's making this squeaky noise. And while you go and collapse in a heap, you know, they're absolute legends. I mean, these guys were were amazing and they would you know, you'd pick it up in the morning and whatever it was, has just been sorted. Um, mm-hmm. But so they would have a certain amount of stuff with them, um, but they also had spare bikes. So I don't remember like uh, when Top Gear used to do their challenges and it'd be like, you know, if, if, if your car breaks down, you've got to take this 2CV or something that gets mm-hmm. brought out the back. So they had they had um, a number of, of spare bikes that you could use as a kind of a uh kind of an interim measure if yours had a catastrophic failure whilst they tried to find something over a couple of days so yeah so you didn't have to be completely mechanically self-sufficient it wasn't quite like you're heading off to south america for six weeks and if you don't have it with you you're done um you did have a bit of slack right and and what about your other kit um that you got in in advance that we were sort of and you you were using we talked through and you were trying to get used to in training um things that would help you on your on your challenge yeah and so they suggest that um you take a soft bag rather than a suitcase and the reason for that is that they um they have they hire two or three um kind of white bands basically that they just throw it in every day so they need that for mm-hmm. just to be able to get all the capacity and they don't want these huge boxes that they've got to try to to fit in and so that in theory constrains you to a degree of what you can take and you know, they would suggest a kit li- kit list of say four four cycle jerseys, four bib shorts, you know, um, four pairs of socks, that kind of thing. But on, on reflection, um, I would have taken nine <laughs> because part of the issue each day was having to come back and wash all of your kit. Mm. That when you've been out for 10, 12 hours, you've got back and you've got to have you've got to do your stretching, get a massage, see the physio, sort your bike out. Um, get food, shower, all of that stuff when it's already mm. late and unpack because mm. um, you're shifting obviously hotel each night. Um, actually, you don't. You, you just want things to be to be straightforward. And on the days off, the two rest days you have, you go and do your washing anyway. So to be yeah. honest, I'll say take as much kit as you can fit in your bag. <laughs> to be honest, the organizer won't like me saying that, but that's that's the reality of it. Um, yeah, lots of chamois cream <laughs> um, and. Uh, Depends on how much you use. One of the lads, it wasn't it Christian, was hilarious. He literally basted this stuff on about every four hours. <laughs> he, had, he was really worried about sores, bless him. Um, yeah, I took uh, I took a, a mini foam roller, so one of those donut shaped ones. You know, the yeah. two the kind of barbell, sh- which was which was brilliant because it was small, compact, um, and that really helped. Just just doing a bit of rolling each day, um, and I slept in. I had some um, hoop kind of compression tights that i'd sleep in mm-hmm. um just to try to help i don't know if it did help or not i mean i still woke up with with awful leg pain some nights um sunglasses so one thing i would have taken would, was polarized lenses 
So I got into changeable lenses, but because we'll talk about the logistics of the actual event, you don't really have the option to carry around spare lenses with you. It's a bit of a faff. Um, and actually, you know, when you're out there for so long, especially going through the mountains, you know, as I'm sure people know, the weather can change quite significantly. And actually, you can go, you can be at the bottom of it and it'd be beautiful and sunny and bright. And, and then before you know it, you're you're going through, you know, fog and rain and you don't want it, you don't want sunglasses there. When you when you say polarized, do you mean reactor light? Yeah, sorry, yeah. So as yeah. in they'll, yeah, yeah. they'll change, yeah. Yeah, so, I, I agree. when we've done those multi-day rides in in different terrains i've found those to be far the best you know they're they're good enough when it's bright but what you don't want like you say is if you're at the top of a mountain and um it's a bit dull to have to be trying to you know store them and going downhill and getting flies in your eyes because you you're going downhill at 40 miles an hour and a fly hits you in the face that's painful as well it it is and especially when it's when it's raining and cold um you, you do want your glasses on but, you know, when it's foggy and misty and you can't reach, even if you're going reasonably slowly, if you're going downhill for an hour, mm. it's, yeah, you, you do, you do want, you don't want to have to faff around. Before we start talking about the event itself, um, let's talk about the training in a bit more depth. So mm. obviously we'd got, um, we'd got an idea of what sort of training you could cope with. You know, we've worked together for long enough. So we knew that you could cope with 14, 15 hours a week for small periods obviously with your job and all the traveling that was probably going to be reduced um also given the restrictions on your weekly training um and obviously then we we got this huge volume of riding that you had to do in three weeks so there was going to be a huge gulf as i think we've already said between what you thought you needed to do and what you could do but but it was quite handy wasn't it that the organizers um based on their experience sent sent this guide on what you should be doing each month in terms of long rides of either a distance or um or a number of hours so you know by the time you get to the end of january you need to be able to do 200 miles in in a month and then by the time you get to here you need to be able to do one a week and everything so we were able to use that as a guide as well as to some sort of little mile posts on the way yeah and they were very good in having regular touch points and creating social whatsapp groups based on your location so that you know because actually a lot of people go back and do it repeatedly so being able to talk to people and kind of almost try and get rid of that anxiety about you know am i going to be fit enough and am i doing enough it was was really helpful they they advised by the end of january so if people doing the full thing based on the assumption that you're not a complete novice and you've got a reasonable base level of fitness as in you know your club rider kind of sea rider kind of level um by the end of january about 100 kilometers uh on a one-off ride february back to back 100 kilometers march 150 150 back to back and then april about 200 back to back with about 3000 meters of climbing across the two you know and the thoughts were if you could do that um then the likelihood is you'll have you'll have a shot at getting through. So that was kind of what we were using as a benchmark. And I don't think I actually got to the 200 back to back. I, I had planned to do some, um, uh, oh, what they call audaxes. There were a couple near me where I was planning on doing some really long ones. But again, with with things that were going on in life, there, to be fair, there was points where I just thought I cannot actually mentally bring the energy to get out and go and do a, 10 12 hour day given the week i've just had 
you did put in some really hard sportifs, didn't you, which challenged you. I know I know you found them you know, particularly yeah. difficult. They were harder than you'd, you'd done before on a one day. Um, and I, I also know that that gave you a lot of confidence in terms of your strength to get through a day at a time at least. Yeah, and, and also for it's not necessarily just the distance each day, it's the, the climate you're in. And, and actually one thing that was good for me to start to understand was in, in the summer doing some of them in, in the real heat because during, when we're out there in France, some days it was 39 degrees. Mm-hmm. And that was absolute agony, especially when you're going up some climbs that are, that are like you know cliff edges or whatnot, and you have the tarmac. So one interesting thing with the tour is that when the routes announced and provinces are awarded the or they accept to have the 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 stage go through their province, they have to essentially retarmac the roads. Mm. So you end up with this beautiful fresh but absolutely black as anything reflective surface and then when you'd go into the mountains you would have the the kind of the, the cliff faces as the road carves around the mountain so it was like being in a furnace the sun would just be bounding off both and reflecting onto you and it was just i was i was agony some days but but being able to get a bit of that prep in and figuring out right actually i don't cope in the heat very well so what am i going to do right well actually that means that i need to make sure that I'm covering my head with a with a cap, which I can endouse with ice or with water if I get to a shop as I move along the way and, and things like that, trying to think about strategies of, well, I'll still be cycling through villages and towns that will have shops. So, you know, and some people would stop at a service station just to go in for the air conditioning for 10 minutes because mm-hmm. they're so, so hot um, that that's the only way they could start to cool down. Yeah, we, we had a week in Mallorca as well, didn't we, which mm. I, I think helped, you know, put – so that gave you five to six days of riding back to back with it with a couple of long rides in there yeah yeah and and that was the usefulness of that as well was doing some of the climbs mm-hmm. so you know, in the 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 kind of we're in the north part of the island so that really helped from a confidence perspective so what i what i would do is you look at the route um of, of the tour look at the kind of climbs that you're going to have to do in percentages and then try to benchmark that on Right, so I've just gone up a 5K at 6%. This is the heart rate and the power I put out, which then meant when we came back, it's like, right, okay, so I'm going to need a cadence of 60 at 220 watts to be able to Mm -hmm. get up a heart rate of 130 and apply that for two hours or whatever it was and start to build the muscular endurance side more than the aerobic side. That's what that was really helpful for. And what was really interesting about that, and it's something I've observed a lot in groups um, and particularly towards the beginning of a camp is that there's a tendency for most folks when they're fresh to push on and go a bit too hard. And if you remember one of those first days we went out, we did the climb up to Look Monastery, which is about eight to ten kilometers. And but that probably your first opportunity to to ride, uh, you know, a long, steady climb, six, five, six, seven, eight percent, um, and and when it was warm, yeah. And you and I, I rode with you, but we got dropped by the others quite significantly uh, because that was the first climb of the day. But later on in the week, we did that same climb, and we went we went and did the half of three one two route. Do you remember? And um, mm. I think we did one hundred and seventy k in that day. And towards the end of the day, when you were still hitting that same power target, you were riding with everybody, and it wasn't because they'd slowed down for you. It's because they'd slowed down because they'd all gone too hard a bit earlier. Um, and I guess that that same thing occurs in in just more stark 
um, observation in the yeah. loop where there's a lot of fit people out there and they get excited and giddy and they smash it on the first couple of days, but everybody starts to come back down to the same level after about four or five days. Yeah, exactly. And, and as mentioned earlier, this is all about self-management and self-control. Um, you know, I'm quite happy getting dropped. I'm quite used to it to a degree. And, and so, and, and the, the key is not trying to not get dropped because you have to be disciplined and you have to draw that line in your head as to to whatever it might be. And when when you're out on, you know, there's some days there are a hundred of us around, there'll be another group behind you. So if you get dropped from the one one ahead, you'll pick another one up behind you. And that can then help pull you along for a bit. Um, yeah, and just having that confidence to stick to your numbers. And you know, I was I was by no means the first or last up any any of them. I was probably middle third-ish of, of the pack of those that were doing it all and you know good days I'd be near the middle bad days near the back of it um but we very much very much had a plan based on on heart rate really so you know the category one two three four and that the young cat climbs you know of a right I will not go above 120 beats per minute on this climb. Mm. I will not go above 130 on this I will not go above 140 you know and I think tourmalay um, I was really, that was really, really, really proud of that. You know, getting up, math, I mapped up tourmalay. You know, that maximal aerobic function bit of was it one eighty minus your age, and and yeah. you don't go above that. And and because that's what we literally trained for. It was how can you get up a climb that you've never been up before? I've got no idea what it's going to be like. How can I self manage my, myself up it, and then it not completely ruin me for the rest of the day and day after day and there was a difference between triathletes and cyclists in that triathletes are used to time trialing. So you're used to steady pace. Do not go into the red. Do not put that lactic acid into your, into your thighs. Cyclists, they're used to, to sprinting and, and kind of bunch racing, right? So it was interesting seeing how people that had a triathlon background were far more steady, far more, right, I'll see you later. You just go to the top. I'll meet you there. Whereas the cyclists were very much, well, I'm going to go hammer myself, hammer, recover, hammer, recover, hammer, recover. But, you know, I, I didn't have the training or conditioning for that. So I didn't even try. <laughs> Just um, let me go back to equipment choice. Um, and particularly after we've been to Mallorca, did, did you make any changes to your gearing um, that you were going to use? Yeah. So I, um, I had a 34 on the front as the, the small, small ring. And on the back, I put a 32 on. Um, I would have got a 34 if I could, but I don't think Shimano do a 32. Um, Campag do. And a few people did have 34. Actually, some people took touring bikes and they had huge gears. Some people had some really interesting setups where they just have a single on the front and just these huge, huge cogs on the back. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, these are people, you know, again, the age, the age range was, was brilliant. The people in the 70s, you know, doing some of the days. And so they adjusted their kit setup for what they were able to do. Um, yeah, so I just thought, you know what, I I want to make this as easy as possible. So the plan was to get up every climb with the least amount of energy expended. Mm-hmm. Hence the biggest ring. You pretty much just go into the easiest gear as soon as you can. Just go, right, I'm just going to spin or grind my way up this. But still, um, 34 on the front, 32 on the back. I think that's probably the setup I've got on my road bike for when we've been riding in the Dolomites. and. When you're going up something like Galibier or Tourmalet, it's 10% for two hours. You know, no matter how strong you are, there's going to be points where it, even that gear, it, you feel like 
it's difficult to turn it around. Oh, yeah, and you know, was you I was having cadence of 60, 70 and just grinding the blooming thing some days. And I, I was quite proud that I didn't actually stop. I almost, you know, like you'd stop for a to have a wheel or whatever, but um, you know, I didn't stop because I couldn't move, I didn't have the power to move the pedals. And the closest I got was on Cold Loz, where I don't know if people saw saw that that stage from from the tour. It was brutal. And Is that the one that went up to Courcheval at the end on the finished on the runway? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it got like 25% gradients and it was absolutely brutal. And, you know, it's almost at a point we think I'm going to fall off here because I'm going so slow. Um, but but I didn't. And that was, yeah, it's happy. <laughs> we, we, but I think probably about the same time as you were riding up that, we were in Italy doing the Zonkalan, which is one of the most, uh, you know, highlight is one of the most feared climbs around. And I don't think any of us walked. I think um, there might have been one or two people walking. But we definitely stopped, but it was tactical stops, you know, stop on a corner, have a wee, get in the shade, because it was pretty flipping hot. And you just feel like at some points, even if you're not pushing hard, your heart rate's going up and you're going to, it's it's just not going to be healthy. Um, but we also, when the road was quiet, was zigzagging across the road and, and that takes off a bit of the gradient, doesn't it? And honestly, I'm not proud. <laughs> it's about getting up sometimes and... Uh, <laughs> You know, we're not, we're not professionals, are we? So um, oh, it was not a pretty sight watching no. me cycle across France, shall we say? Okay, well, that seems like a great place to finish for this week. In next week's conversation, we'll talk about what happened once the rider started cycling and some of the challenges at multi-day events. And you might be surprised to hear that the cycling part was actually the easy bit. Okay, now if you don't already know about them, please check out my bite-sized podcast episodes. I recorded about seven or eight of these before Christmas, and new ones will be starting this coming weekend. They're about 10 minutes in length, and I share my insights on some very specific topics. And if you've got any suggestions for those, feel free to drop me an email. To make sure you don't miss any of the episodes in future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and then click the subscribe button. And if you have the time, then I'd love it if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that I have a new coaching group. It's called SWAT Plus. Now, you might already know about my SWAT in the circle. And this one gives you all the benefits of SWAT, such as year-round training plans and our exclusive Facebook group. But it also gives you monthly group coaching calls, which include hot seats, where you can put the spotlight on yourself and we'll talk about your specific problem as well as a dedicated WhatsApp group and personal guidance from me to set up your training plan to suit your lifestyle and goals. The program's limited to just 15 people. So if you'd like to join me and a group of like-minded endurance athletes who are building health and performance in 2024, please click on the very obvious link in the show notes below. Right, that's all for this week. I'll be back again with James next week, so I hope you'll be able to join me to hear the end of his big adventure in France.